Hello and welcome to Alone Upfront, the podcast for teachers doing it by themselves. I'm Steve Mortimer once again, and I'm with Chris Mortimer once again. Hi, Chris. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm very warm. Um, it's a very warm Berlin summer's day when we're recording this. Um, and we thought episode two would be about assessment, what seems like the driest, most dull topic in all of education. But it doesn't have to be, although it often is. We're going to talk about that today. And we're going to introduce a, a new feature to the podcast on the second episode, which is a top tip so later on, either from me or Chris, a top teaching tip that you can use in your lesson tomorrow or even today if you're watching this wherever you are in the early morning. We hope that you've had a great week, that you've done some great teaching and there's been some great learning happening in your lessons. How's your week been, Chris? Yeah, it's been quite busy so far, actually, Steve. Um, just finished some exam marking just last week. Yeah. So talking about summative versus formative assessment, I suppose we're that would be summative assessment. Indeed, indeed. And it was a big job, as you know, marking an exam. You've usually got a short deadline to work towards. So was very happy to get that done. And then I've had various projects backed up as a result of that, including uh, doing our second podcast. That's right. So you've been all, all involved in the summative assessment that you mentioned. And I've been involved in the formative assessment, which is the other kind, because I've been preparing my students for the exams they're going to be taking in the next couple of weeks. So straight away, we're focusing in on the key issues today, which is understanding that assessment can perform different functions. Um, I think we should chat about assessment for a little bit. Then we'll get to the top tip coming up later. Then we'll conclude our assessment topic and then we'll wrap up for the day. So before we get into assessment, we have to backpedal a little bit and say, ask the question, what is the, the role of the teacher? Like what is the teacher supposed to be doing? I think most people would say, well, you know, teach, duh, it's kind of obvious. But mm -hmm. there's a secondary role, which is as well as teaching, we are expected to kind of provide a stamp of authenticity on somebody's learning or somebody's ability. Um, depending on the context in which listeners work, they may or may not have to do this. If you're working in a kind of informal teaching situation where you just have a small group, maybe you're teaching a language course at a company, or maybe you're just organizing a training day or something, in that case, you're expected just to teach some content, effect some learning, and that's that. Everyone will just assume that the learning happened. But as soon as you get to a slightly more, a slightly longer term context, whoever's wanting you to do the teaching will probably be interested in finding out whether learning is taking place and in a very formalized setting that will be through official uh, state organized or otherwise officially organized examinations um, of which you will also be part as a teacher so you're not only supposed to be teaching stuff you're supposed to be the stamp of authority that says that this person is at this level of ability and this person is that this different level of ability and i think that one of the biggest problems in my um, professional career especially when i st started being alone up front as i have been for the last 10 years um, not teaching in a school but sort of teaching in a university where there was less support the key conflict has been a a disconnect between the assessment happening at the end, that role of the teachers rubber stamping one person as that ability and one person as that ability, and then the teaching that's happening leading up to that assessment, mm. because those two things were not considered uh, together. 
And when yep. you, when you're planning teaching, and when you've been told right, you've got you know three months or six weeks or three hours, the first thing you need to think about is right: Am I expected to not only um, teach but also to assess? And should that assessment be summative? Should it happen at the end and provide a summation of the learning um, or not? And if you do have to do that, and you will have to if you're working like you and I do in higher education, obviously if you're working in schools. Um, you may have to do it in school or it may be done by an examination board. If you're doing an informal com company course, they may have said, well, look, we, we want some kind of certificate or we want, you, we want you to prepare us to sit this external test or something. You've got to find that out. And then you've got to make a distinction between summative assessment, which happens at the end, and formative assessment, which happens during your teaching and serves to form learning as it continues, hence formative when i was doing teacher training in the uk um in about 2005 the term they used to this which was much a buzzword was assessment for learning afl yeah and i came to understand while i was doing that 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 pgce that i mentioned in the first episode that understanding how to manage assessment for learning is kind of the, almost the key to everything in in terms of getting your learners to really understand the progress there making is this something that you've encountered in your career much or have you had any direct or indirect experience with summative versus formative assessment well absolutely and i think like like a lot of listeners out there um certainly early in my teaching career i was doing assessments but with no particular awareness about the kind of assessment that i was yeah. doing and for me I mean, I kind of did the P. I didn't formally do a PGC, but I was able to do it vicariously through <laughs> you. And you've thrown some game-changing concepts my way, and one of them is summative versus formative assessment. And yeah, everything you said there. I think the most important point is once you reverse engineer your module content, your course content, reverse engineer it from the assessments at the end. Not only does it de-stress it for the students because they're going to be assessed according to what they've learned, it's going to de-stress it for you. Yep. I mean, just, yeah, I mentioned that I had a Martin exam last week and we've got a new second marker uh, on this module. And this second marker wasn't particularly well acquainted with the module mm. content. And, you know, to be completely honest, we don't have... Uh, a comprehensive um, assessment for learning framework on the module mm. anyway. And it did create quite a lot of stress. Uh, we had to have conversations along the lines of, you know, why I was awarding credit and how that was fitting in with particular parts of the module. And they're, they're really stressful conversations yeah. to have, particularly in a, an exam uh, deadline uh, situation. So although everything turned out absolutely fine, by being more deliberate and intentional about this process, you can de-stress it for student and de-stress it for yourself. Absolutely agree with everything you're saying there. And I think the term reverse engineering is, is really key here. What we're talking about is when you prepare a unit of learning for your learners, you start from the assessment and work your way backwards. So rather than conceiving a different topics, different units you can do, and then thinking about how to test it all, you think, right, what is 
what are my expectations? What does the organization want me to equip my learners to do? Or what do I want to equip them to do? So you actually set that at the beginning and then start working backwards and seeing whether you can make your 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 learning, your units of learning fit that assessment, not the other way around. That's the first, I mean, it's counterintuitive. It makes far more sense when you're planning something to start at the beginning, see how far you get, and then figure out a way of testing it all. But that's never going to work because your exam or your test or whatever it is, um, how is it possibly going to cover all these different things that you've been that you've been creating in a kind of free, free thinking kind of way? Um, you're going to end up with an exam or a test that only tests a portion of what you've been teaching your students. And that creates uncertainty because then the students feel, well, hang on a minute, I came to that lesson and that plays no part in the exam. And then you start getting mm -hmm. questions of, well, okay, um, what, what sessions do I need to come to? Because students, learners, yep. they've got other priorities in their lives. And it's understandable if they'll start focusing in and realizing pretty early on, okay, what we need to do is learn that, that, and that. All the rest of this is, is kind of nonsense. So, but if you start with the assessment and figure out what, what, what skills or what knowledge can I meaningfully actually test? Um, you know, you may have two hours for an exam. You may want to do it a task-based exam where you're doing some kind of simulation. You may have a team of teachers that you can use, or you may be alone, probably. And then you have to think, well, what, what can I meaningfully actually test? And then that creates the scope of content uh, or the scope of skills that you should be teaching on, on that module as, a, as a, very, a very basic thing. And when you learn to do that, then the questions of, oh, is this, is this lesson going to be relevant for the exam? They fade away because it's all relevant. Because you could say, you know, genuinely, everything we do here does flow some way into my assessment because I planned it to be that way. So that's how you can make summative assessment more relevant and less of a potluck uh, situation for your students. Because I think we need to move on from the idea that the teacher randomly selects a few different topics and you never know what's going to be in the exam or whether something's going to come up in the exam. I mean, it, it, I don't know. We can talk later about different assessment methods, but it doesn't seem fair to me. So that's fine. So you might say, well, good, yeah. we can end the podcast there, guys, because summative assessment is important. You've told me I should match my mm -hmm. content to the exam. Thanks, great, done. But formative assessment, assessments for learning, is so much more important. That's the assessment that happens during the teaching and which flows back into the learning. So it shapes the future, it forms the future learning. And this is connected to a massively fundamental concept called um, metacognitive awareness, which I know you're also a, a big fan of because um, we've discussed it before um yeah i i that is a term i'd like to dig into but can i just touch on one thing on um yeah. summative assessment before we before before yeah. we move on i mean talking about um absolutely we should reverse engineer things from the assessments and design the module content yeah. from there but there may be some things that are difficult to assess that you absolutely think um some things that you think difficult to assess but they are essential in this module and we had one situation um on this module i just marked last week to do with uh, a technique called rich yep. picturing which um i know you're a fan of steve and uh, you know it's one of my research interests but it's, it's just the practice of drawing out a business situation as opposed to trying to describe yep. it in words 
And this um, technique of rich picturing it, it really is core to the module because the module is about more creative and holistic ways of thinking about business. But at the same time, it's very difficult to assess a rich picture because it is essentially Mm. a picture and it's, it's, it's difficult to get away from that subjectivity of looking at a picture and kind of thinking about its um, aesthetic Mm. quality as opposed to, as opposed to something else. So we judged that it wouldn't be fair to kind of get students doing rich pictures in exams, but that doesn't mean you can't assess um, kind of the theory behind Mm. uh, rich picturing. So, you know, what, what is the purpose of rich picturing? Um, why is it better than just talking about things? Why is it better than exchanging mm. emails? All of those theoretical ideas that sit behind, in this case, a more creative technique, that all of those things you can kind of list out, articulate as learning outcomes. Yep. And and they can be part of... So it doesn't mean, you know, the summative assessment, it doesn't mean you've got to take out all the fun stuff uh, <laughs> necessarily. It just, it just means you've got to, got to um, be a little bit more... Uh, rigorous about how you're going to assess it. The, the idea of taking out the fun stuff because you can't assess it is also like a massively important topic that I'm sure we will discuss at some stage on this podcast. Um, in the sphere of language teaching where I work, there's really a move towards task-based language teaching and task-based language assessment where you create examinations that actually simulate real life situations rather than doing a academic examination of a learner's grammatic skills or vocab uh, vocab range and this will be the same thing here you could um, with a rich picture obviously you got just draw a rich picture i'll tell you how good it is difficult to assess but if you include the rich picturing process as preparation for a discussion or for an email that will be written mm. um, then you can say to the student look it's not directly assessed but the better you do it the better it will support your communication in the in the subsequent meeting simulation we're going to do or the better it will support the planning process for your email writing and it will be reflected that we can assess i can assess your speech in a meeting and i can assess your writing and so you're trying to use a task-based approach to assess something which is not intrinsically quantifiable or assessable which is all good now but i think yeah this is something that we'll we'll, we'll definitely get into um in on a, a later episode so coming back to metacognitive awareness um yeah, I, I asked you, what are your feelings on this this strange word? What do you understand by it? And maybe how has it affected your um, your practice as a as an educator? I got to be honest, I don't, I couldn't define it succinctly. I mean, meta, yeah, metacognitive is it thinking about thinking? Yes. Yeah. So it's yeah, having an, a self, the self awareness to be able to think about the way you're thinking about something. Yeah. Yeah. In a nutshell, um, the me- the meta bit is the thinking is the the metacognition. So it's thinking about thinking, and in learning uh, teaching and learning terms, it's having your learners in a situation where they know what level they're working at, and they know mm. why. Importantly, so they know that at any given moment when they're writing or speaking or doing a group or whatever they're doing, they have a sense of how how well they're doing on some kind of defined scale maybe it's a grade scale maybe it's a a national curriculum literary strategy old school level scale we used to have in the uk something like that Mm. but they're they're aware of it so you could actually ask anybody at any point in the learning um what what level are you working at or where are you at the moment and they'll be able to say well i guess i'm at this level 
and I can do this and this, but because I can't do that consistently, I'm therefore not at that level. So mm. you are talking about devoting a proportion of the time in your lessons and a devotion of the devotion, uh, a, um, what am I trying to say? A proportion of the cognitive load of your learners should not just be on the content of the learning, but on their own capacity to, to understand it. Um, I always think of it in terms of, you know, 30, 35% of their thinking. Mm. I want to not be on the actual stuff they're trying to figure out, but on their, reflecting on their own process of figuring that out. And this yeah. is where, this is where summative, um, sorry, this is where formative assessment comes in. You need to have a shared vocabulary, a shared typology of um, different aspects, different um, performance um, elements, which would constitute a solid performance, a really good performance, a shaky performance in whatever you're teaching. The vocabulary has to be there. It has to be shared with the learners, and you have to refer to it with like a rigid iron consistency. So we always know in a lesson what we're looking to do. To take an example, we're looking to use, um, in the language learning context, we're looking to use conditional sentences. So if I can say something, but I'm only using declarative sentences, I'm not talking about any possibilities, not using conditionals, then I know I'm not doing what I should be what I should be doing. If I'm using a range of conditional sentences, discussing different possibilities, that's good. If I'm using the conditional three sentences, which means talking about how things could have been if we had done them differently, then I'm working at a really, at the kind of level that I know will get me a given grade at the test at the end. And we actually talk about that. So you're trying to, you can do it in the form of little tests at the end of this lesson, but you can really um, formative assessment is embedding the targets of the learning into the very fabric of your lessons and establishing uh, a typology of different levels or different stages and establishing a vocabulary that your learners are familiar with um, which you use consistently with them to talk about their own progress and their own learning all of that is part of metacognition wow yeah it's um <clears throat> I mean, what I'm thinking is, it's it sounds extremely ambitious to ask to ask. I mean, when where is this? At what age does this start happening in education? Is is this happening in primary schools? Yes, it's not, it happened. Yeah. It happens. I mean, well, I, my thinking is, if you have the capacity to learn then you have the capacity to understand your learning at some level. Mm. Of course, it takes a diff yeah. different form in um, with kids age six or seven. The nature of their metacognition is not as sophisticated as with adult learners. That's clear. But you can still, and any, any parent will say, you have to have conversations about your kids about why they can't do that and why they'll ask you why and you'll have to explain it. And yeah, always understanding like what can I do, what can't I do, and then why can I do it, and why can't I do it? That's already metacognition. Mm. It's you're already or taking it to that next level, and so really, I think it's the job of the team. I mean, it, it may seem like yeah, I can understand what you're saying. It's it's too difficult. How I mean, we're we're professional teachers. It's our we're supposed to know how to say whether that piece of work is good or that's not bad. But how can we expect yeah. our students to do that? But I think we can if we have our summative assessment clear like we understand we actually understand what we expect them to learn and how that learning objective will 
manifest itself in the form of a learning outcome learning outcome being the mm. result of learning learning objective being the actual learning happening in the brain um, and if, if we've clarified that and if we've been able to establish a and this is where we come to student-friendly criteria which is the, the last thing i want to talk about on this topic if we establish a vocabulary that's learner friendly so yeah i mean if we're talking language learning you can use all kinds of complicated grammatical terms but you don't need to you can express it in simple enough language that the learners can understand it and as long as you do that from the start and as long as there's always this um culture in your learning space of not mm. only discussing what you're doing but discussing why you're doing it and how well you're managing it then you can you, you, it just it just it just changes everything it changes everything about your absolutely no it's, your classroom. it's a profound it's it's a profound thing you know in the classroom and in life um yeah. you know generally and uh, you know it's something that um in the universe you know with the students i work with um it's something that some are capable of and some frankly are, uh would really struggle with yep. that kind of that that kind of metacognitive um kind of function it, but um so so could i ask you um in a practical sense mm. what are you doing um in your sessions um in the materials um you know i understand it's something that we have to you know work on every session we have to put it into every session but yeah. but if if i came to um you know to your union berlin and you know asked like a school inspector would ask the student you know what level are you at and what are your weaknesses what you need to do to get to the next level i mean are you are you really saying that a student would be able to 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 answer that strikes fear into the heart of every teacher um the, the yeah. prospect that that could happen but that's what does happen um in yeah in the school inspection system in the uk um okay I can't promise that every single learner would be able to answer that question i, I wish they would but yeah. i'm i'm on my own journey there as well and i'm i'm gradually getting better at it what you need to do is when you're developing your summative assessment that you do first, as we learned, um, you set up a system of criteria that you're going to use for grading it and you share those criteria from day one with your students. As, sure. far, as far as you can, you write it in student-friendly language. Now, that's tough because um, grading criteria are either simple and easy to understand and therefore fairly useless because you can't actually create subtle gradations of ability or they're extremely detailed and extremely good at separating mm. different gradations of ability but hopelessly complicated to use and sure. getting the right balance is incredibly difficult um for people looking for examples just look, look online search for grading criteria marking criteria you'll get lots of examples in in all kinds of different subjects if you search on the internet and you'll get a sense of how different people have tried to tried to solve this um if you create that and if you equip your learners with that and they have that with them throughout the um the learning if it's on the wall of your learning space if you have the capacity to yep. to do that um then you start getting this established vocabulary and typology of abilities and consistency consistency of always giving feedback in the similar similar kind of way that inculcates um uh, this awareness that we're talking about and it really needs to be clear to them that you will assess them at the end according to the same criteria that they're assessing themselves the whole time so it's a real um it's a real empowerment of your learners because 
you can actually get to the stage where you say to them, you know, to be honest, although I, your teacher, do I grade your test, I suppose, it's really you that decides the grade you get. Because you know, yeah. I mean, by this stage, you know that this kind of performance will get you that grade. And if you don't do that, for whatever reason, then it will become as no yeah. surprise that you don't get that grade. Um, I've had, I mean, in a way, well, as soon as you've done it a few times, it seems completely obvious and it would seem madness to deny your learners these criteria. Um, and yourself. <laughs> yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's right. Um, but if you've not done it before, and I, generally speaking, in when I teach, I'm working with students at university and they, they haven't done this at school particularly, they're amazed. They, they think I must have made a mistake mm. to, to, to give them the answers, as it were. But of course, it's not giving the answers. Yeah. It's just giving them a ladder to understand how they get from where they are to a, to a higher level. And, yeah. um, you know, in a perfect world, your students would have that with them every week and you talk about it and all that. But in the real world, it's a bit more tricky. You don't have 100% attendance. Um, but, you, but students will inevitably leave this stuff at home. But if you, in your head, if you've got a clear framework and you always refer back to mm. it, then you're, you're halfway there to creating um, a, a shared metacognitive awareness within your group Absolutely. of learners. Um, and it's really, can, it's really going to work. To, it'll, it'll take it. It'll snowball from there. They will enjoy yeah. the fact that they feel in control of what's happening, and mm. they're not passive consumers. And then they're going blind into exam, and who knows what's going to happen? No, no, they, they are yeah. driving the process, and it makes it so much fulfilling, more fulfilling for them, in my experience. And there's, there's lots of ways to disseminate this. I mean, I mean, you, uh, you mentioned um, having it on the wall of the learning space. Yeah. Um, a lot of people out there will be using online learning platforms, mm. Moodle type platforms. Mm. Um, you can get the materials on there. You know, you can you can repost them every week. Yeah. You know, it doesn't it doesn't cost you any much time or money to do that. Mm. Um, in the context of what I've done, I have uh, when I teach a university module, uh, we have three terms and ten weeks in each term. Uh, so we have nine sessions and I have uh, three learning outcomes per session. Mm. So tw 27 in total. Um, and I suppose in some ways I'm moving towards how this should work. In other ways, I haven't got there yet. But those learning outcomes. So each week we have three learning outcomes. Yeah. But the, the step I haven't done is because all of those materials exist now. So what I should do is list all of the outcomes, all 27 on a sheet of paper at the beginning. Yeah. And then uh, distribute that at yep. the beginning. I think I think that would kind of close the loop on it. Yeah, yeah. So that they know where, where they're going. And obviously that's a hell of a lot of outcomes to be assessing in your assessment. And I guess those outcomes, um, they kind of find, they must be combined in some way, right? In, in the final assessment. Um, when 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 this is this is tested summatively or what form does the final assessment take well this this is exam right this is exam so um so so yeah i mean um we we test most of those out learning outcomes in i mean it's a three hour exam with yeah. four questions okay okay uh so so it's a big exam mm -hmm. um so so we touch on most of those yeah what uh, there, there's I suppose there's a distinction to be made between more skills based learning and more knowledge based yes. learning, and um, what, yep. I, what I've been talking about with the goals criteria does suit itself to more to skills based 
learning so acquiring a language or improving your native language or something like that but and i think when you're talking about more content knowledge based learning um there's nothing to stop you creating um resources uh which demonstrate what a good and an okay and a not so good answer exam answer would look like um I've had a lot of success taking this from from old papers from from old from um, students that have long gone, anonymizing them, and you know we've got plenty of examples of of learning at every different level. If you work those up into PDFs, annotate them with your teacher comments, and create an annotated version and an unannotated version, give those to your fresh learners and say, okay, let, let's flip this around. You're the teacher right now. Which one of yeah. which one of these answers is best, and why? There's those kind of annotations are so powerful. Talk about working on the meta level. Mm. Um, if you can read something and see what the teacher's thinking about it at the same time. Yeah. You know, I, I have done that kind of thing. I think it's a very powerful yeah. great way for students to get to get insight on what's required. I mean, they enjoy the process of being, you know, being the teacher. They get to decide if they're strict or not. But And so it's kind of fun. But mm -hmm. more than they actually start appreciating how difficult it is to make these differentiations Ooh, yeah. and make these calls between, is mm -hmm. this better than this? And why is that? And they realize, wow, it's so much easier to say, oh, that one's great and that one, that one's rubbish. But explain why. And then take two that are very close, but one's slightly better than the other and explain why. And when they've been in that position themselves, um, then they really start appreciating how much difference um, just small improvements can make. You know, the the difference between a an A grade and a B grade can come down to just a couple of sentences, a couple of slightly more clearly defined concepts, a slightly different approach, and um, it motivates them in their own learning. They start realizing, wow, it really there's it makes a discernible, measurable difference. Because if I hadn't mm -hmm. have thought about this, I would have written it like that this example but if i had written out this example which i probably could have done if i had worked a bit harder that gets a completely different grade so you're really mm. you're just like you're opening up um the take you're pulling back the curtain to the job of of assessment that you do as a teacher and in so doing you're empowering your learners and you're taking the pressure off yourself um you'll also um another nice side effect is you get far less um pushback once you do allocate your grades because if you're allocating grades at the end of a some kind of module and you're giving feedback then the feedback will be a lot more meaningful to the learners if it's the familiar vocabulary typology that they've been using the whole time and um you know that there's much there's far fewer grounds for complaint if they understand from the from as soon as they see mm. it yeah in fairness that's true so to do that could, could I put something to you then, Steve? I mean, um, I think um, there's plenty of people out there, certainly in the university space, who are a bit suspicious of this kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. I've had conversations with senior academics who, you know, don't want learning criteria uh, on a module. And one criticism, and I do have some sympathy with this, is that these learning criteria can become kind of tick boxes or kind of shopping lists. And there's a sense that if students do all these little parts mm. and tick all the boxes, then they can pass. But but they miss these these overarching skills. For example, creating a coherent argument. You know, a, a student can say, "But I did X, Y, and Z." Yeah. But if 
those arguments are linked together in a logical progression mm. to create an argument, mm. Mm. then then it doesn't deserve the top grade. So have you got any experience with that? I, I, you know, I certainly have had these conversations with other academics and with teachers. And I think, um, you know, what it comes down to is, and I'm sure we'll get into this on, on, on another session, but really articulating those learning criteria properly and including what we could call meta criteria yeah touching on touching on the kind of thing i just mentioned yeah you've got to mention x y and z but you've also got to demonstrate this 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 meta skill of weaving ideas together into a, a coherent argument that in itself yeah. is a learning yeah. criteria it's it's a very valid point and i think you answered it already by by referring to the yeah. sophistication of the criteria that you set up and then that, that goes back to the earlier point that i made it is impossible actually to always have exactly the right balance between complexity sophistication and usability and learner friendliness mm. of these criteria i think um it can help certainly if your criteria um approach different elements of the learning outcome so you might make a division for example between content and form um in this case what you're talking about is if you just included content like well as long as i mention x y and z then i get the good grade right and you say well no no but they're, they're the content criteria the formal criteria are the language you use the structuring um the links that you create mm. to create a conceptual framework, how you how you prosecute your case um those criteria have to be fulfilled as well so um, in the communicative contents that I work in, I always set four different criteria, the purpose of the communication, um, the content, the audience, and then the form. So why, who, what, and how. And mm, PCAF. PCAF, we, we'll, we'll talk about it later, no doubt. And although it's an undeniably complex matrix of different ideas, um, you generally can avoid this idea of just um, the students thinking they found the magical formula. And as long as they just do this, this, and this, then they're definitely going to get a perfect grade. Because you can say, you know, it's not just what you do, it's it's how you do it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, th there will always be limitations. Um, th yeah. th and there will always be, there'll always be, th th there's a powerful argument for saying, you know, the challenge should be the learner um discerning what is required even though it's not stated and debated in the classes and simply delivering it and and you could argue that that's part of the learning but then that goes back to what we're talking about in episode one this was the mode of instruction in uh, um tertiary education for, for a very long time there weren't any criteria there was no metric there was no formative assessment you were just expected mm. to somehow magically figure it out and that was perfectly possible mm. for the you know five or six percent of people that were going to university at that time yeah, if sure. we're working in a more applied country if we want to make our our teaching accessible and if we want to be inclusive as practitioners then i think we need to adopt a more varied um approach and i think that the benefits offered by um, formative combining summative and formative assessment and using that to leverage a sense of um, cognitive awareness in your lessons via learner-friendly criteria. Yes, it brings it brings with it problems, but the benefits massively outweigh them. Oh, no doubt. Oh, no, no doubt about that. I'd I'd say you know, kind of paraphrasing what you just said. I think there is, there's always some room for, there's always some room for interpretation. Yeah. 
even if using the same language. And, um, you know, I, I'm totally open with students. You know, we have all the learning criteria, but I say, listen, at the end of the day, um, it is my judgment through um, expressed through these criteria. So you do have to, you know, the student has to accept and, and you know, the mm. other people on the teaching team have to accept, accept though, that even when everything is transparent and everything has been externalized and and discussed and everything, there is there is some a small amount of credit reserved for kind of um, the assessor's overall impression yeah. of the piece. Some discretionary sort of ten percent yeah. or something is is something you can always throw. Because I think there. I think what what I want to say is we're we're coming we're always coming from a pragmatic perspective. Yeah. Perspective. I mean we're. With the- theoreticians, you know, we love chatting about the theory, mm. but we're out there, mm. uh, you know, at the coalface day in, day out. Mm. Mm. And we know that that pragmatic awareness is essential for bringing at least some of this theory into practice. That's right. That's right. Okay, so let's go over to our top tip for today. Oh, love it. Love it. Hit yeah. me up. <laughs> okay, very simple. Um, despite the fact we work with smartphones and tablets and laptop nowadays and probably with projectors and stuff, I find that piece of paper, that the piece of paper as a medium is still like the lingua franca of the classroom. Whatever you're doing, you're probably still sometimes copying and distributing sheets. Um, maybe, yep. maybe you're not, maybe, maybe it's all, it's all online. It's all, all on, um, all on oh, tablets. It's better, but if you have a physical sheet, then you have a focus and you have something for the student, yeah. you know, there's a little bit of intrigue. If you say, just look at the PDF on, on your laptop, it never has the same effect. No. I mean, I like working with paper as well. Although, you know, I try to limit it. My top tip is this, when you're handing out sheets, you have to think about the energy in the classroom. Um, so many times you lose the energy of a task because you introduce it, you develop a certain amount of anticipation and then you suddenly realize, oh, I haven't, I need to quickly hand the sheets out. And then you're kind of banging your legs on all the tables and crashing and asking students to pass the sheets. Then they don't get it right. And then you realize half the sheets have disappeared. And all that nice like sense of anticipation you built up is gone. So in order to avoid this happening, you need to get ahead of it. You need to get those sheets out to students before you start your little introduction chat makes sense but that brings with it another problem if the students have the sheets early and they've looked at them they start reaching their own conclusions on what that sheet contains and whether it's interesting or not and generally those conclusions will not be as positively in your favor <laughs> as you would like them to be because you know th- with the best will in the world the learners don't necessarily get the point of the sheet until you've foregrounded it with a fun introduction so we need a way of getting the sheets out there so that the introduction is done and the and the the activity can kick in but without the spoiler effect and the answer is very very simple you give out the sheets face down and you don't let your students mm. turn them over and you do this with everything that you hand out in your lesson. You get into the habit early on of always putting it face down on the desk. The first couple of times, they'll pick it up and try and look at it. You can just give them a wink and say, uh, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And then very quickly, they'll stop. Within within two lessons, they, they won't pick them up anymore. And that means that um, you get into a habit of distributing the, she- the sheets well in advance, always face down, and then you can foreground the task get it going, develop a bit of anticipation, develop a sense of challenge, maybe you already start deploying the learner-friendly criteria to, to dictate the success of the task. And then this nice moment you say, right, turn over your sheets. And it makes for such a sort of a crisper 
better controlled flow uh, activity starting a better flow of energy in the classroom than if you're dead legging yourself desperately trying to give out sheets or if students <laughs> have already looked at the sheets and decided that they're boring and you have to work against that it seems like such a tiny thing like hand out sheets face down mm. but it's the kind of thing which is just it's just it makes it makes everything so much easier yeah i love it i love it and um yeah we've obviously we've had so many of these conversations where um and recently we've been talking about uh, working in groups and um, I'm sure we'll talk on the podcast about, uh, you know, we've developed a, an Excel based yep. tool to, to generate groups and mm. all of these things, you know, I'm personally, I'm not really into kind of the marginal gains theory, but yep. it is for, for me, this, this is all about marginal gains. Oh yeah. You can get, you can get 2%, 2%, 2 less stressful because of the sheets Two percent less stressful because the groups are organised mm -hmm. properly, mm -hmm. and and you can have five or ten things that if you practice and if you do every time will just become natural to you. Yeah. And before you know it, uh, your teaching sessions are twenty percent, twenty percent less stressful for you, twenty percent better for the students. And that is twenty percent that you will really come to appreciate. Um, <laughs> it it really will. It'll make a big difference. So wherever you're teaching this week, uh, think about your assessment. Maybe um, think about whether you can start rolling out some consistent student-friendly criteria. Get them thinking about their own learning. Get them thinking about their own thinking. And, very important, give out your sheets face down. They'll turn them over first Top time. Tip. They'll turn them over first time, but they won't do it. They won't do it long, and you will come to reap the benefits. <laughs> Folks, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, yeah. and we hope that you're getting something out of this podcast. Um, Chris, I hope you have a really good week. Thank you. you too, Steve. Take care, everybody. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll be back with another podcast pretty soon. Thank you all for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>